Well, because we believe that it's the Word that does the work, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, let's take our Bibles, shall we? Take your Bibles, get your journal ready, a pen, let's put our eyes in the book, both here in this room at our Carlisle campus, I want to welcome them here as well. Let's find Matthew chapter 21. It's Matthew's account of the eight days that changed history. We're going to be walking you through those days this week. I want to encourage you to be a part of every single aspect of Passion Week here at First Family. Not only today, but Monday, Thursday, we'll have our communion and prayer service. Um, Very intensive and reflective time as a church body. We'll partake of communion together. Spend some time in prayer, which is pretty normal around here. Hallelujah. Love the way prayer has just embedded itself so deeply into every part of our church. Then Good Friday, we'll have a, a wonderfully creative service for you put on by our worship team, and I think you'll be quite uh, participatory and very immersive in some very creative ways. You'll really enjoy it. And then, of course, Easter is Resurrection Sunday this next week. So be a part of every single one of these avenues so that you can grow and continue to deeply appreciate the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, that very first Passion Week was March 29th, A.D. 33. That's when most historians believe it took place. Jerusalem at that time was an air fryer of a city. It was heating up fast. From man's point of view, it was because Roman occupation of Jerusalem. Add to that, the Passover was going on, so the crowds in Jerusalem were exponentially greater and more dense. And there seemed to be a threat to Caesar. Some king was hanging around in their mind. But from God's point of view, it was the final week of the life of Christ. It was the beginning of eight days that changed history. Matthew 21 begins to lay those out for us. And what we're going to see is this, that the reason those eight days changed history is because of who lived in those eight days and who died in those eight days and who lived again in those eight days. It was Jesus, the Son of David, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the one and only Jesus. He's the reason those eight days changed history. And I'm going to walk you through the first four of those eight days this morning, beginning in Matthew 21. I want to show you just a brief timeline. After seeing the timeline, I want to help you see some general themes that emerged from that timeline. And then when we merge the timeline and the themes, I want you to see just one central truth that we'll walk away with. So Matthew 21, your Bibles are open there, your journals are. I'd remind you that in your journal for this series, there is a general timeline. However, in this message, I want to walk you through the first four days. I want to give you kind of behind the scenes, uh, a behind the scenes look at why the event occurred. In your journal, you just have the event, kind of the the circumstance. I want you to know why it occurred. And so let's dive in. 
Matthew 21, this first Sunday, we know it as Palm Sunday. It's chronicled for us in the first 11 verses. The reason this event occurred is summed up in two words, fulfillment and identity. You'll see these two words kind of surface and emerge. In the first part of Matthew 21, Jesus commands two disciples to go and make things ready, find a donkey, and then, of course, let them know that if anyone has an issue with that, just say the Lord needs them and they'll be good with it. So that occurs. Pick it up, verse 4, would you, Matthew 21. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be, say the next word with me, fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here's the words of Zechariah, Isaiah. So verse 6 says, the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. So here scripture is being fulfilled by the one that God had prophesied and predicted. Verse 8, a very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. And then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Just reading that, you can understand that this event did not go unnoticed, did it? What you might not know is this, that this event is the only public appearance that Jesus ever initiated Prior to this, there were many public appearances. In fact, there were times folks would try to make him king, try to get him to do things ahead of time, and he would always say, my time has not yet come, but he knows now the time has come. And he instructs the disciples to get the donkey. He mounts it, which is the opposite of what the current kings in the physical world would do. They'd come in the west gate on a stallion. He comes in the east gate on a donkey. But he's coming in as king, no doubt. And so this first event on that Palm Sunday, it sparked a series of events in which everyone who came in contact with him, they had to respond to his identity as the final fulfillment of all that God had prophesied and promised. In fact, the end of verse 10 really sums up what everyone had to answer. Who is this? No one was able to avoid him. and His identity demanded a response from everyone. Let me just quickly share with you what I think the three main responses were. There's a response of external excitement in the crowds. And they're shouting, Hosanna. They're seeing this must be the fulfillment of the prophecy in the Old Testament. And yet I tend to think they were simply seeing him as a cultural king. One to relieve them of their current political suffering. One to take care of their current stress level within the city. So, hey, here's Jesus. It looks like he's fulfilling what Zechariah and the Psalms and Isaiah were saying. So, hey, if you can get us out of this Roman mess, man, you're our kind of king. I think, though, that most of them saw him as a cultural king. 
As we'll read later, you'll see that there are religious leaders who saw him as a counter-king. They saw him as a threat. You know, they often mask their unbelief with religious activity. And they would appear to be in step with Jesus, but they really weren't. They wanted to trap him and destroy him. Because they saw Jesus, yes, they knew he's king, but they saw him as a counter-king, a threat. And then there's the disciples who, in entrusting faith, saw him as a conquering king, as the consummate king, the one who did fulfill all that God promised. So they trusted and believed him, that he would conquer sin, conquer death, conquer the grave, and they believed him. That really is the responses within these first four days. Most folks either saw him as a cultural king or as a counter king or as the conquering consummate king. You see, I think that's interesting as you read these chapters in these first four days, there was never a doubt about his identity. There was great clarity as to who he was. There wasn't great submission to who he was. And so he rides in on this first day clearly showing he is the fulfillment of all that God promised, establishing his identity as the Son of God and the Son of David. He was king. Move to Monday, would you? Monday comes and we see Christ now cleansing the temple and cursing a fig tree. Let me just insert a note here about the order of things in Matthew as well as in some of the other Gospels. You'll find that sometimes they can be ordered differently. And here's why. Often, sometimes the writers would insert things thematically, and sometimes they'd insert things chronologically. So it's best to take all the Gospels together, harmonize them, and then understand from those events, here's how it probably happened chronologically. So you're going to find that sometimes Matthew inserts an event into the, into the narrative when it really didn't happen at that exact moment, but it's the same event, same details, and there's a thematic reason for that. So we see that in Matthew's gospel here, he cleanses the temple and he cursed the tree. Notice with me, verse 12 of chapter 21. He went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, it's written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of thieves. There's some type of expulsion happening here, isn't there? He's, he's uh, getting rid of, of, of that which should not be in his father's house. It's being misused, and he's making this an illustration of what he will do on the next day in regards to the leaders of Israel and the nation of Israel. But he also illustrates that in the um, encounter with the fig tree. Look at verse 18. This is, again, his own Monday. Early in the morning as he's returning to the city, he was hungry and seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it, found nothing on it except leaves. He should have found fruit. He didn't find any. And so he says to the tree, may no fruit ever come from you again. And at once the fig tree withered. And you'll find that other gospels record the explanation of this as happening on Tuesday. Matthew gives it to us right on the spot to keep in the same vein and theme of the text. He tells the disciples, this is because uh, this tree illustrates those without faith. He's speaking there of his own people, Israel. And this is an illustration, we might call it an object lesson of what he's going to do on the next day when he pronounces an official judgment on Israel, on his people. 
for their continued unbelief and stance of rebellion and resistance to his identity. He throws them out of the temple. That's one forecasting illustration. He curses the fig tree. Where there should have been fruitfulness, there was fruitlessness. So two object lessons, two show and tells, we'll call them. And so on that Monday, he cleanses the temple, he curses the tree. Why? To showcase that where there is fruitlessness, when there should have been fruitfulness, there then will be judgment. When you misuse what God has given you, don't be surprised when God removes you from that place. It's a pretty stark day here, pretty intense day, but it's not near as intense as Tuesday. Let's move to Tuesday, shall we? Tuesday really is the day in which things are heightened uh, when it comes to controversy and confrontation. In fact, this is really what Jesus does most of the day. He engages in a lot of confrontation, questions. He confronts the religious leaders. You know, they're coming off the heels of him cleansing the temple, turn, turning the tables over. And so there's a lot of talk going on in the town, no doubt. And he confronts a lot of these. In fact, it begins in chapter 21, verse 23. Would you do this with me? I'm going to walk you through kind of what he does in kind of the narrative format. Just circle the verse number in your Bible, would you? And notice how this unfolds. Beginning in chapter 21, verse 23, he first of all encounters the chief priests and elders. Do you notice that? And they came up to question him as he was teaching, and they're questioning his authority. He had just established this in his triumphal entry. His identity was clear. They just didn't like it, so they're trying to trap him. Well, that doesn't work. And so in 22.15, the Pharisees join the crew, and they plot to trap him by what he says. Do you see that in verse 15 of chapter 22? Well, that doesn't go real well. And so in verse 23, the Sadducees say, let us take a shot at him. And they try to trick him and trap him. That doesn't go well either. In verse 34, the Pharisees come back for round two. He silences them again. And in chapter 22, uh, verse 41, he's in the temple teaching and they surround him. So he decides to ask them a question. There are five, what I would call, pretty intense Q&A sessions with Jesus. And every time he turns the tables on them and they're left dumbfounded, they're left cornered when they were trying to trap him, Combine this with three parables that he tells, indicating there is a people who will be uh, redeemed and who will believe, and there are those who will be rejected because they've rejected. He kind of walks them through these different parables. It's a, it's a stunning moment if you're the religious leader thinking, man, which group am I in? He's confronting. He's challenging and then he finishes this with a sweeping expose of their hypocrisy in chapter 23. Seven times he pronounces a woe, which is just a big fancy word for judgment, upon the religious leaders, namely the Pharisees, calling them open tombs, sepulchers, full of dead men's bones. You look good on the outside, but you're really rotten and dead. And this is a pretty... A hostile day if you're a Pharisee, a Sadducee, a Herodian, a chief priest, or an elder of the people. <laughs> Things are climaxing. They're reaching an apex. And this is what Jesus does on Tuesday. He confronts and he, 
engages with controversies. Why? To expose and convict. I think what's happening behind the scenes is this. Jesus is trying to, once again, draw a clear contrast between man-made religion and what they're saying and then God-ordained salvation. That's what God says. In the person of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, here these folks are focused on themselves and, and their methods and their systems of works. And he's showing this contrast over and over. And it is challenging. It is quite uh, stark, but it was necessary as the cross was looming in front of him. Now, here's what I think is really interesting. Even in his exposure and his conviction of these religious leaders, namely the leaders of Israel, we find that he does something loving, merciful, and beautiful. And all things Jesus does are merciful, loving, and beautiful because he can do nothing that's not loving and merciful. Even when he does difficult things, even when he brings hard truth, it's still in a loving fashion. So we're not saying this is out of his character. It's just seen more vividly that at the end of his expose on their hypocrisy and his seven pronouncements of judgments, he then gives this beautiful lament on how he wishes they would have turned to him and repented. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you under my wings, but you would not. But then he makes a stunning promise. He says, but there will be a day in the future when you will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's one indication to me that what they said on Sunday, while it may have been meant by some, it was probably more of a cultural cry, but there will be a day in the future when every knee will bow and they will see that Jesus is king. And they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I believe that's referring to the millennium, when the kingdom of God is on earth as it is in heaven. And Christ here makes a beautiful allusion to that. And it's a very merciful moment, even after this incredible judgment and pronouncement of woes upon these leaders, he still is maintaining this posture of mercy and compassion. Well, that's how Tuesday ends. Travel with me now to Wednesday, would you? This is probably the calmest day, thankfully. We don't know a lot about Wednesday, except that he continues teaching, not only in the temple, but his disciples as well. And here's why. He's preparing them and he's predicting for them what's ahead for them. Now, this naturally flows out of Tuesday because I think that what happened on his way back to Bethany on Tuesday evening, that's Matthew 24 and 25. Remember, he gives a sweeping, judgmental expose to the Pharisees in 23, heads back to Bethany, and then on that walk, I think he tells the disciples all that's ahead for them. The destruction of the temple the signs of his coming. He lays all this out for them. He arrives at Bethany, spend the night there again, and then Wednesday approaches and he continues teaching them as well as in the temple and helping prepare them for what's ahead. In fact, in chapter 26, you gotta get the sense that his mind is now set on what's in front of him. Look with me, chapter 26, verses one and two. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he told his disciples, you know that the Passover takes place after two days. This is Wednesday morning. 
And then Thursday will pass, and Friday will be here, the Passover. And he says this, and that's when the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So while he's preparing his disciples, predicting for them what will happen, prophesying what's ahead for him, and facing it with courage and sacrificial commitment, look what all of his enemies are doing. Verse 3, then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the courtyard of the high priest, verse 4, and they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Now notice the contrast here. From chapter 21 up to this point, they were trying to trap him in his words. We saw that verse multiple times. All kinds of groups trying to corner him verbally, trap him with his words. But now they're going to kill him with their swords. They're done trying to figure out how they can make him look bad. They're going to exterminate him. This is what Wednesday details for us. And this is one of the reasons I think Wednesday's somewhat quiet because it seems like they both went back to their corners to use a boxing metaphor. These enemies are like, you know what? We can't win, so let's just kill him. So they go to conspire now against our Lord. Christ knows the Passover is two days away when I will be the lamb. He takes his disciples into his corner. and He begins to prepare them predict for them what's coming. This is why the Gospel of John is so much fun to read Wednesday and Thursday of this week. Because, you know, the Gospel of John, half of it is reserved for the last week of Christ's life. And much of it is the conversation he has with his Father on Wednesday and Thursday and with his disciples on Wednesday and Thursday. And if you want to get a look into how much Jesus cared for and helped his disciples prepare for the incredible journey that lay ahead of them, read the last half of the Gospel of John, which chronicles really the last week of Christ's life. It's a beautiful picture of Christ's love and friendship to his disciples. In fact, that's when he says, I now call you friends. That's Sunday through Wednesday. That's the first four days of this week, a long time ago. Would have been, this Wednesday would have been April 1st, A.D. 33. For us, it'll be April 5th, 2023. Is that right? So just transport yourself back there. In real time and space, historically, you kind of see what happened on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And maybe you're thinking, well, Todd, has this just been a, History lesson? Is this just a uh, journey through chronology? Is that kind of the point? Not at all. It's fun to talk about. It's interesting to see. It does give evidential um, uh, verification to what the Bible says. Brings a ton of evidences and proof to our faith and what we believe. But it's not just a chronological, chronological journey today. I want to show you three themes that I think jump off the page of the first four days. In fact, I would say you've probably already seen them. They're not hard to spot. We've alluded to them already, in fact. Let me just briefly lay them out for you one more time in the most succinct fashion. Theme number one, the identity of Jesus is clear. Jesus Christ fulfilled over 300 prophecies of the Old Testament in his life, 
death, and resurrection. And that includes his birth. In other words, the life of Jesus isn't a random happenstance. It's, a, it's a, an event planned and ordained by God that fulfilled 300 prophecies. The crowd knew it. They just wanted it for the wrong reason. I think the leaders knew it, but were threatened by it. The disciples fortunately knew it and believed and trusted. But I want to repeat this. Every single person in this narrative knew they were dealing with the king. His identity was clear. And so the real issue isn't the, the, the clarity of identity. The real issue is, will you be submissive to it? My friend, that is the issue today. And I'd remind you, you can refuse Jesus, but you cannot erase him. You must deal with this fact. Historically and divinely, Jesus Christ came and fulfilled every prophecy to a T. He's Lord. He has arrived. He's here. Now, what will you do with that? I remind you, you can refuse him, but you cannot erase him. He's king. How will you respond to his clear identity? Second theme I see in these narratives of the first four days, the patience of Jesus is long, though it's not endless. Twice in these chapters, we see the, the patience of Jesus verbalized in a couple of laments for the city and the people. And yet at the very end, what happens? Jesus Christ actually pronounces a verdict upon Jerusalem, upon his people, upon those who had rejected him, indicating to us that he has a, a long patience. He does. But there is an end to it. And in this text, we see that the house of Israel, it's called, came to the end. And they were judged, sentenced. The verdict was rendered by Christ. They were stubborn. Time eventually ran out. And this is why I'd say to us this morning, repentance and faith is an urgent matter. Are you listening to me, church? Guests, longtime members, acquaintances, relatives, are you hearing me? Your response to Jesus is not something to delay. This is why Jesus would often say, today is the day of salvation. He never said, you know what? Take care of it next week. Put it on your list for later. It was always a sense of urgency about your response to Jesus. Why? Because his patience is long. Hallelujah. But it is not endless. And there is a line. And so we appeal to people as ambassadors of God, be reconciled to God. Third theme I see emerge from here, the love of Jesus is deep. This explains why his patience is so long and frankly, why his identity is so clear because nobody loves like Jesus. What do you mean, Todd? Well, who else has gone to the cross for you? Nobody. So his love is so deep. Now, I think you can see his deep love 
in so many ways, both to the nation of Israel, to the leaders in his long patience, but personally, I especially see his love for his people, the disciples in this section, and the way he nurtures and cares for them as they are approaching a very difficult time. Remember in John 14, which, is, which mirrors this time frame, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. The word troubled there is the word for stressed. I mean, can't you just see Jesus coming alongside his friends? Saying, guys, it's Wednesday. I know what's ahead. Friday's just two days away, and the Son of Man's going to be crucified and turned over to the hands of sinners. But in this whole time, he, he's, he's not thinking of himself. He's thinking of his followers and preparing them. He's loving them. He washes their feet. In fact, John says this about that event, that since he loved his own, he loved them to the very end. He washes their feet. I mean, there's so many things in these last couple of days that show us the incredible love Jesus has for his friends. We should not be surprised. This is what the king does. He lays down his life for his friends. It's the king who said, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus did that, showing that he has a deep love for his children. Can I say to you some basic words that I hope will settle your heart for a moment? You ready? Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. That's staggering, isn't it? When you combine the timeline, the first four days, and then you take a look at the themes that resonate in those days, we're really left with one unquestionably clear truth. And it's this right here I want you to put in your pocket and take home. Let this resonate all week. Say it to yourself. Put it on your mirror. Write it on your phone. Keep it somewhere where you see it. Here's today's take-home truth. The first four days show us clearly that Jesus is the king who has come with his kingdom. In fact, can you just say that with me on this Palm Sunday 2023 about the first four days that happened years ago? Together, church, Jesus is the king who has come with his kingdom. And by the way, this isn't just what we're deducing from the text historically, divinely, supernaturally. Though we can, it's also what we know from the words of Christ. When he was with the Pharisees in some of these Q&A conversations, other gospels tell us that he said to them, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. They were trying to find out where it is, and he said, it's right in front of you, it's me. When Pilate said to him, so are you a king? He responds, so say you. I mean, Jesus never tried to deny his kingship. He did try to qualify what kind of kingdom it was. But not once did he say, no, no, I'm not the king. So by his own words, by the, the course of history, by the prophecies of God, evidentially, supernaturally, theologically, divinely, historically, here's what we can say with accuracy and clarity and boldness. Jesus is the king, and he came with his kingdom. There's a lot to unpack there for another sermon. 
But can we rest on this solid foundation? That Jesus is the king. And he came with his kingdom. This is what was proclaimed and seen in multiple ways throughout those first four days. And everyone who encountered him had to respond to this. You're the king, and you've come with your kingdom. I would add this to you, that what's before you today is exactly what was before that first audience. How will you respond to the king who has come with his kingdom? Can I revisit for you the three major responses in the narrative? Perhaps some of you are going to respond with external excitement. Thinking that Jesus, King Jesus, man, he'll get me out of this red and blue mess we're in. You see him as a cultural king. Your answer to your current dilemma. Maybe you see him as a counter king. Maybe he's a threat to your agenda, to how you want to live your life and spend your money and invest your time. Like, I don't want someone telling me what to do. Jesus, back off a bit. He's a counter king to you. Or maybe you're like the disciples and you see him for who he really is, the fulfillment of everything God promised. Every promise of God is yes in Jesus. And now in trusting faith, you surrender and you follow. He's your king. He's your conquering king consummate king. I think all of us are responding in at least one of those three ways, perhaps others. I want to encourage you, resist the cultural king, a temptation. Resist the counter king temptation and fall on your knees and embrace your conquering king. Submit and surrender to Jesus. He's king and he's come with his kingdom. I think this is what one of the ladies in our brown bag theology class is realizing. Many of you know I teach a class for five weeks on Wednesdays at noon, and you're welcome to come, by the way. This is not a plug for that, just letting you know you're welcome to come. It's over in the multipurpose room. Bring a sack of lunch, and we talk theology for an hour. Currently, we're talking the doctrines of grace. It's called brown bag theology. One of the ladies in there, on, I think the second week, she asked a question. And she kind of um, prefaced the question with this. She said, Todd, I'm going to throw you a softball question. So I, I had a feeling she was expecting a certain answer. And she said, so you're saying that God loved Jacob because he knew that Jacob was going to love him. She's kind of expecting a yes. And I said, no, that's not why God loved Jacob. Her eyes got larger and she got a smile and she realized we don't hold God, Jesus, we don't hold um, Christ on a leash. We're held in the grip of his grace. Like he's king. He's not our puppet and we're not saved by our works we don't control God by what we do. He's king. And you should have seen the smile on her face. 
And even the conversation after that, she's realizing more and more, oh, that's who Jesus is. He's not my servant. I'm his servant. He died for me and loved me so deeply to, to redeem me. And so my life is his. And she's seeing more and more Jesus as king. Amen? By the way, she, Lord willing, will be baptized next Sunday. Isn't that fantastic? Amen. Yeah, praise the Lord. Amen. Now, I say that in praise to God, but I want to say to you, perhaps you're in the same boat. Perhaps you need to respond to King Jesus in the same manner. Quit trying to negotiate or bargain, but realize he is king. And this king loved me so much, he laid down his life for me. Not because I earned it or leveraged him for it or negotiated him into it. He did that out of his own character because he is loving and good and merciful and just. And so seeing Jesus as king, historically, supernaturally, theologically, divinely, I have one response, surrender. My yes is on the table to anything King Jesus says. I'm praying that's all of our response today. Palm Sunday, 2023.